Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Have you noticed that there's so many choices and decisions that you have to make when you're doing this simplest exercise of just being present for your experience? I mean, what could be simpler, okay? Just be here now. But how to be here now? There's so many different ways to be here now. You might sit, come to your cushion or your chair or your bench and say, okay, there's the breath. There's breath at the nostrils, where there's the rising and falling, where there's the chest, where there's the body expanding, contracting. That might be good. That might get me really concentrated. There's, maybe I shouldn't just go for concentration and just kind of open things up and just be (laughs) choiceless awareness, you know. It sounds like there's something there. Choiceless awareness, that sounds so advanced. (laughs) But Mental noting is pretty good too. You know, you just kind of stay one thing at a time and you know that you're there for it. In, out, hearing, sensation, that'll keep me here. No, no noting. Who needs noting? That's like, that's for kindergarten stuff. You know, we're beyond noting, right? Um, But maybe metta would be good. because my heart is starting to get a little closed and um, I, I just, I think I need to soften and lighten up a little bit. Compassion, that's really getting to where I need to be. Um, so many choices, you know. Have you noticed? Do, do, you, do you sit down and say, what the heck am I supposed to do? You know, I'm here for four weeks already. What am I supposed to do again? God, you know, and then of course there's the different attitudes of really just putting my wholehearted effort into doing this. You know, I don't want to waste my time, so I've got to really surrender completely and throw myself in. But I'm supposed to be relaxed. Uh, I'm supposed to just. Lighten up and let the moment come to me. Oh, that big mind, you know, that's, maybe that's, that's what I need, okay. Just not do anything. Oh, yeah. Just rest in the moment, yeah. But don't get lazy about it. It gets really confusing, doesn't it? And then you hear uh, different approaches, or maybe you've read some some very inspiring words, you know, you, you hear the phrase, you know, practice like your hair is on fire. You know? <laughs> That'll get you going, right? I once sat with this great master who said, mm, abandon all concern for the body. Right? If your leg is falling off, just keep noting it. Falling <laughs> off, falling off, you know. Heroic effort, and that's a very powerful way to practice. Then you hear somebody else, simple and easy, just empty phenomena rolling on. This is great Tibetan um, passage I love by uh, Gendon Rinpoche. I'm not sure if I read it. Maybe I read a little passage of it. If I did hear it just again, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. 
As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. That's the the higher teachings that they tell you after the preliminary practices of 100,000 prostrations and mantra recitations and visualizations and mudras, you know, after you really work your butt off, they say, just relax, you know. <laughs> so, you know, how do you, how do you sort this out? And then besides the, the, the different styles of practice, there's, there's lots of different decisions that you have to make throughout the day. Let's see end of the sitting, but I'm really kind of in a groove right now. You know, should I, should I start walking or should I just keep on sitting? Oh, maybe I'll keep on sitting. And then you sit for a while. Am I trying to prove something? Am I being an egotist here? You know, or is it just what's happening? I don't know. Maybe I should go for a walk. Maybe I should do some really slow walking. Maybe I shouldn't do slow walking at all and just lighten up. Gosh, I'm kind of tired right now. Oh, this is time for compassion practice to just really give myself a nap. (laughs) This is the most skillful thing I can do. And it might be. Or, who are you kidding? Just get in there and be sleepy Buddha, sit up, let it be okay, don't try to make anything different, you're sleepy, okay, be okay with sleepiness. Sounds good. So many different decisions. Just relax. Stronger investigation. So many different ways. And they're all coming from thoughts in the mind. Of course, that's a whole other dimension. How do I work with my thoughts? Okay, so all these messages are coming through. What am I supposed to believe? Or this thought keeps on coming back again and again, and it's just driving me crazy. How do I work with it? Well, part of this talk, besides exploring, getting in touch with skillful listening and skillful practice, is a a very practical piece that I wanted to share with you in the first part of the talk um, of um, the Buddha. Uh, What... Because you might say, well, what did the Buddha say about working with all of these thoughts? What's the right way to do it? You know, should I see them as empty? Should I feel the feelings underneath them, but not too much? Should I hold it with compassion? Should I not buy into them? You know, how do, I, how do you work with the thoughts? What did the Buddha say? So part of this talk, at least you'll get from what the Buddha said. So you know there'll be value in it. And I want to share with you a bit from my, one of my favorite discourses, Majjhima number 20, the Vitakasantana Sutta, the Sutta on the removal of distracting thoughts. And this is, by the way, this is about in developing concentration. He says, sometimes you're going to have some troublesome thoughts. Here's how to work with them. And I would, I would say, just parenthetically, that this is after the initial mindfulness of thoughts, to just see, oh, it's thought. But that doesn't always work. So here's the Buddha's advice. When a practitioner is pursuing the higher mind from time to time, one should give attention to five signs or five ways of working with thoughts. Here, owing to, owing to circumstances, there arise 
in the practitioner unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hatred, with delusion, then one should give attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome. When one gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, then the unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, with delusion are abandoned and subside. With the abandoning of them, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. And there's a metaphor for each of these suggestions. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one, so too when a practitioner gives attention to some other sign connected with what's wholesome, mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So, some unwholesome thought comes in your mind, and he suggests in this one, to replace it with a wholesome thought. So, for instance, if you're feeling um, a lot of anger and hatred, and you've, you've noted it, anger, anger, but there it is, it's still grabbing a hold of you, what might you replace that thought in the mind with? Anybody have a suggestion? With metta seems reasonable. Oh, okay, you're really getting caught up in anger and hatred. Do some metta. Very skillful. If you're having a lot of um, um, doubt, what kind of reflection might be helpful for you? Anyone? What's that? Intention, your sincere intention. That could be good. The moment where you were very peaceful and reflect on that. Okay, reflecting from your own experience something that brings you faith. Or the opposite of doubt is faith maybe maybe something that you've read that inspires you or reflecting on the Buddha, the, the Dharma and the Sangha. So to substitute something that brings faith when there's doubt. If you're feeling um, a lot of um, wanting, say wanting something that you think is going to do it, any, any reflection comes to mind? Gratitude. Gratitude could be a good one. Yeah. Anything else? A classic one for for the grasping mind, oh, I really need that. That's going to do it for me. Reflecting on impermanence. Is this going to really do it for me? You know? So you get the idea to substitute what's wholesome for the unwholesome thought. But then, as a prag- pragmatist that he is, the Buddha says, might not always work. So he goes on to a second Suggestion. If while giving attention to some other sign connected with what's wholesome, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion, then one should examine the danger in those thoughts thus. These thoughts are unwholesome. They are, I'll just use the, the translation, they are reprehensible. They result in suffering. And when examining the danger in those thoughts, then the unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside, and with the abandoning, the mind becomes quieted. Just as a man or a woman, young, youthful, and fond of adornments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck, (laughs) so too, when a practitioner examines the danger of those thoughts, the mind becomes steadied, quieted, concentrated. That is the colloquial... Uh, the the uh, classical version of the colloquial expression, don't go there. <laughs> you know that feeling? We don't want to go there. And sometimes this can be a very useful reflection where you see that wave of thought pattern coming from left field. And you've been there before a thousand times. You can put the whole thing into a frame and say, 
do I really want to go there? I know where this is leading to. Uh, on one retreat, I'll just share briefly an experience I, I had. I don't think I shared it before. I came on the retreat. These are in my big um, football fanatic days. I'm not near the fanatic I used to be. This is when the 49ers were in their glory years, right? And I, and I, my mind works. I can't tell you what I did two days ago, but if I see something in print, it sticks in my mind. And I happen to look at the schedule for the six weeks that I was here. <laughs> this was dangerous. Because my mind, I get into, my whole body goes through, in football season in those days, a, a whole reaction. And it's by Thursday or Friday, I'm kind of ge gearing up for the game. And, uh, and then Sunday, you know, at 1, you know, if I knew, oh, Sunday at 1, they're in Atlanta. And I see my whole, my mind start to go to all of these thoughts. And I try to get rid of them and was really frustrated. And, and then for three hours from 1 to 4 in this room, I'd be going, oh, what's going on for the, in the game? And then it would take me a kind of half a day to kind of get over the game, whatever I imagined was going on. <laughs> this is driving me crazy. And by the second week, I said, this is, this is not good. You know, I've got to figure out another way. And I just would wrap, I, I didn't know about this discourse at that point, but I'd wrap the whole thing into one package. And as I'd start to notice Thursday or Friday, just mm, football thoughts. Football thoughts, football thoughts. I don't need to go there. Right? And I, I said it a fair amount, but it, it kind of held it in a bigger context. And you might find the, the naming of your pattern in a, either a humorous way or a kind way or a, a compassionate way helps you get some space around it. You don't need to go there. But it might not do the trick. So here is a third suggestion by the Buddha. If while examining the danger of those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then one should try to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. When forgetting them and not giving them attention, they subside. They're abandoned and subside. And with the abandoning, the mind becomes steady, quiet, and concentrated. Just as a person with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut her eyes and look, or look away, so too when a practitioner tries to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them, the mind becomes steady, quieted, concentrated. Forgetfulness and inattention. This is the Buddha saying, don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to something else. Forgetfulness and inattention. This is like when you're sitting and you've got a pain in your knee. Instead of thinking, oh, I should be with that because that's what's most predominant. No. That's not so skillful. Your mind becomes caught and contracted and and confused. Or if you're dwelling on a particular thought, then you might turn your attention, not as a, as a substitute, it's a little bit different from the first one. The first one is substituting a wholesome thought like metta. This is tuning into something that's happening right here in the moment. Oh, here's sounds, let's listen to that or let's notice some place in the body that's not hurting and focus on that. Forgetfulness and inattention to the distracting subject and turning your attention to something else that's happening here. Same sounds useful, but it still might, do the, might not do the trick. If while trying to forget those thoughts and, giving, and not giving attention, they still, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then one should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. With the abandoning of them, the mind becomes steadied internally, 
and brought to singleness and concentrated. Just as a person walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And they would walk slowly. Then they might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And they would stand. And then they might consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And then they would sit. Then they might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And they would lie down. It's getting better and better, isn't it? (laughs) And by doing so, they would substitute for each grosser posture for one that was subtler. So too, when giving attention to the stilling, the thought formation, the mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, and concentrated. So this is, and I've, I've read two different explanations of this strategy. One, just chilling out, just relaxing. You know, when you're really getting tight, to just cool out. What do I need to get a little bit of space? Or another another way of interpreting this, stilling the thought formations, noticing where those thoughts come from. You know, they might come, for instance, from feelings that are fueling them, getting to the root of them, or even more profound, getting to the space of mind where they arise all by themselves. Have you ever noticed or ever reflected on where do thoughts come from? I used to ask that to every teacher that I met. Where do thoughts come from? Nobody ever gave me a satisfying answer, but it was a kind of mystical pointing. They come from some mysterious place, who knows where. And when you can get to, like in that big mind, just being the space of awareness out of which things appear all on their own, that's another way to get to the the source of those thoughts. They come to the place of stillness, that ground of being out of which they emerge. And then finally he gives a fifth strategy. If while giving attention to stilling the thought formations, and I say this with some caution, but If while giving attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. When with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, then the unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion are abandoned and subside. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him, so too with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, practitioner beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, and in so the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. Wow. (laughs) Now you have to understand first that the Buddha was a warrior. He came from the, the warrior caste, and there's a lot of warrior images, but what does this mean with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth. If you've seen in your own practice, probably you've seen, every time you try to fight your mind, it doesn't work. There's no winning that battle. But if you can very firmly, clearly, tough love, as they say, say enough, enough, without aversion, without frustration, just with a very clear enough, sometimes it can work. If you've had that experience where you just said, okay, I've had enough, let's just stop it for now in a loving way. If you've, if you've seen that as a helpful strategy. I'm just curious if you've experienced that. Okay. Yeah. 
It's possible. You have to be very delicate about it. And if, you, if you're finding yourself saying enough for the 30th time and taking out the stick and saying enough, enough, you've gone too far. It's just a very clear, okay, that's it for now. So you can see when you ask, what's the right way to deal with these thoughts? What's the lesson in that? There's no one right way. There's lots of different ways. Just like there's lots of different ways to practice. The primary strategy, be mindful. But other than that, there can be lots of different skillful means. So in that understanding When you ask the question, am I doing it right? That's just another thought thinking there's a right way that can lead you into confusion, doubt, questioning. So how are you supposed to figure out what is the most skillful in the moment? What's the teaching? First, to know that there are many different ways can lighten you up from thinking, oh, I'm doing it wrong. But then to get a sense, how can you get a sense of the most skillful way? Jack Kornfield has this book. It used to be called Living Buddhist Masters. It's now called Living Dharma, where there are 12 great, masters from uh, Burma and Thailand talking about their way of doing Vipassana practice. And each one of them has a very profound technique. Some Some of them saying, this is the right way. Some of them saying, this is one way that I teach. But you read one after another, you kind of get a sense of letting go of what one Remember, one colleague used to call uh, the onlyest way, making the superlative of it. This is the onlyest way. And it's also important to to notice um, your your thoughts of, um, you know, when you go into uh, an an interview and, and, and somebody gives a suggestion, you know, that you might go to another teacher and they might give you a different suggestion. So, how to work with this, especially given the fact that there must be some value to interviews. So, when I share this, I'm I'm not saying, um, you know, just shine shine it on. I mean, there's it's because it's very hard to see while you're in the middle of your process just what is happening. So you might have some perspective that is kind of in the middle of things that's not seeing from a, a, a reality check when, when, you make a, when you go to an interview. I don't miss interviews when I'm on retreat. Because you, you kind of feel like you're, oh, I feel like I'm about six or seven years old, you know, and I go inside. There's all the armoring is down. It's like you're a little kid, and hopefully you have some confidence and trust and so that the person that you're sharing with is there to support you and guide you give you a little bit of reality check and maybe perhaps um, draw out of you the um, the wisdom I want to share with you one of the one of the great teachings of the Buddha the the advice to the Kalamas this clan that had, perhaps many of you are familiar with this, had so many people coming through their village saying, I've got the real teaching. And then the Buddha comes in and he says, this is the Dharma. And they, they, say, they say, gosh, there are so many different teachers that come through this 
land and they illustrate and illuminate their own doctrines but the doctrines of others they put down revile disparage and cripple and for us sir uncertainty arises and doubts arise concerning them who indeed of these venerable teachers speaks truly who speaks falsely how do we know what to believe and now you're saying you have the truth and he says, it is indeed fitting, Kalamas, to be uncertain. It is fitting to doubt, for in situations of uncertainty, doubts surely arise. You should decide, Kalamas, not by what you've heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher, but when you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves, that these things are unhealthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken inclined towards harm and suffering, then you should reject them. And when you know for yourselves these things are healthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken inclined towards welfare and happiness, then having come to them, you should stay with them. So, ultimately, who to trust? Right in there, there's access to a place that you can trust. Now, I do say, I want to underscore, that in working with the teachers in interviews, um, to not acquiesce to views that you prefer as uh, one of the warnings, but to just kind of see for yourself what makes sense, what connects with you, what you feel intuitively is supporting your practice, and you might try it out. But it's not necessarily going to be the end-all panacea, because the process is much more fluid than, than that. So to use the teachers wisely as Kalyanamita, spiritual friends, but ultimately, this is trusting on a deeper level. Now, you listen to yourself anyway when you have those thoughts going on that you buy into, right? You're listening to them and believing them. You might as well learn how to listen skillfully to all the messages that come through. And sometimes it can be a little bit scary to think or to reflect, can I really trust myself? I've got so many different thoughts coming through. How do I know which is true, which is supportive, which is wise, and which is just getting me into more, more confusion? So when I think about it. Trusting myself is kind of frightening, but trusting in a deeper level than the views or the thoughts that I'm coming out with, trusting in the awareness without identifying with, and now I'm right, that's a whole different level of trust. Trusting, taking refuge in the Buddha right inside. When you take refuge in the Buddha, it's not just taking refuge in, in that man who lived 25, 2600 years ago. You are taking refuge in the Buddha that's right inside that you're learning to awaken more and more. That's different than me and my brilliance. That's uh, Mahabua, uh, Ajahn Mahabua has this, this phrase of 
the one who knows, trusting in the one who knows, or Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedha would talk about trusting in your Buddha knowing. That's different than James knowing or you knowing. How do you get in touch with that? I think I spoke in an earlier talk about insights and about if you, or maybe it was in in one of the morning uh, uh, question periods, if you if you have the approach of, I think I know the answer, and it seems to be right, all you end up doing is patting yourself on the back and saying, I am so clever. But in order to have a real insight, a real experience of, aha, oh, look at that, it means that you're letting go of knowing. I think I mentioned in the the Third Zen Patriarch that, that line, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. When you let go of your talking and thinking head, then you're... You're letting go of the analytical and you're allowing the wisdom to emerge. So a, a big part of this process is, is learning, to, learning how to listen inside and seeing through the, the limiting beliefs that we have, all kinds of beliefs about who we are, where we've been, you know, if only, if only this didn't happen to me, then I could be, etc., etc. Or I'm someone who, who never, getting lost in that tangent, or I should do this, with a finger wagging pointing to you. I really need to, you can feel it in the energy. All of those beliefs about yourself or about practice are just beliefs to get to a deeper level that intuitive knowing, as uh, has been mentioned by, uh, by other teachers a couple of times, there's an intuitive wisdom that we're contacting. Mm. This is uh, from... This anecdote by, about Michelangelo that someone lavished praise on him when he, when he created the amazing statue of David. <clears throat> and Michelangelo brushed, brushed aside the compliment saying, the man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. And in the same way, there is a Buddha right inside of you that just gets obscured by thoughts and beliefs. And so to really see your Buddha knowing or experience your Buddha knowing or your, if I can use the phrase, your, your Buddha nature, your true nature, the wisdom inside, um, this is what we're about. Again, this is the Buddha saying, Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This the unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands, so for them there is the cultivation of the mind. This is what we're cultivating. It's not like we're adding on wisdom. We're just seeing through the attachments that allow the wisdom to shine through. Or another expression of this from Wang Po, the great Zen master. Your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. 
But most people of the world do not awake to it regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. And blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, that source would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. It's good news. That's who you really are. Mm -hmm. So how do we get in touch with this pure knowing, with this wisdom inside? Um, Well, we're doing it here, and I... I hope that you see this process is more and more connecting with that place that knows, but sometimes it means learning the lesson over and over. That there's a a humility that comes as you're doing this practice. Humility. This is a very important start because in that humility, you're you're first not getting attached to, I know. And it's humbling, especially if you've done a fair amount of practice. You know, Like, I can't believe I'm still stuck. And there's that thought. You know? And God, I've heard a, a hindrance talk. You know, I've heard 200 hindrance talks. You know, okay, I got it. Why am I here again? That's a thought that you believe. Or, oh, I know, it's the second dart. Okay, I've got it. See it clearly. It's still here. Why is it still here? Just be mindful. Be kind, compassionate. It's still here. And we get humbled again and again and again. Isn't that so? We think, okay, I think I finally got it. And then we get humbled again. And being humbled is part of this process. Not to circumvent it and think, okay, when I finally get it, I'm not going to be humbled anymore. No. Being humbled every now and then is a good thing. You know? It can lead to either it can lead to humility or humiliation. The choice is yours. And humiliation is getting contracted and struggling and feeling proud or there's all of that sense of self. But true humility, when you stop the struggling, when you surrender, when you let go of your knowing, when it's a true experience of anatta, of seeing through the selfless nature, of not figuring it out or buying into those thoughts. So this is the first thing, just to see that every time you get caught, it's not wasted. It shouldn't be wasted if you learn, oh yeah, I'm not running this show. This is a very important thing to remember again and again and again. Because where the problem comes in is thinking, I should direct my, or be able to direct my retreat, okay? I fell into a groove, and now I think I've got it. Where did it go? That's where you get caught. So it's not in thinking that you can figure out how this retreat is supposed to unfold. It's completely letting go of that. That's where a huge piece of the freedom that's available is not taking credit or blame for your experience. Mm -hmm. I think I'll tell a a story, actually. Um, Carol had alluded to it uh, once. For me, really getting this this understanding, I I was on this retreat, and things were just really really cruising along. I was, uh, the practice was really going well. I was quite 
clear and energized and sitting for long hours. You know, I, I'd never done anything like that before. And it was like, wow, this is very cool. And on this one, uh, this one sitting, I was sitting right over there. And this one sitting, I, was, I had been sitting for, you know, quite a quite a long time. And I would sometimes sit with my eyes open, and just to kind of ground myself from time to time. And in walks this yogi who I had tremendous respect for who was really sincere in her practice. And she sat in front of me. And um, inside of about 15 or 20 minutes, there she was, just the classical case of the nods, just kind of mm, like that. You know. mm. it, was, it was quite dramatic. It was all the way down. I was amazed how she kept her balance. Mm, like that. You know. And I really respected her, you know, tremendously. And the thought occurred to me, how is it I'm just grooving along here? I know very well what that's like. I've spent days, weeks probably, if you put it all together, in nods. (laughs) And I realized, I don't know how I got here, and it could so easily be me tomorrow. And in that moment, it was like all of a sudden the whole room spun around and there were just these energies of here was clarity and an energy, here was sloth and torpor, here was loving kindness, here was equanimity, here was uh, enthusiasm and happiness, and, and they could all be inter, what do you call it, interchangeable, interchangeable parts. And to take credit for where I was, was so absurd. It didn't make any sense to say, look at me. I didn't know how I got there. And that was a a really profound understanding. I am not running this show. It is completely a selfless experience. As long as I don't get in the way, I can be here for the ride. So that's a first thing. This humility actually leads to a tremendous sense of confidence and trust in the process. If you trust in the awareness to just show up, then that trust in the awareness of just meeting this moment becomes a kind of trusting in the process. It's doing itself through you. Just you don't need to get in the way. And as you trust in the process more, then you you start to trust in life more. And that's the the profound opening. So getting out of the way, thinking that you're doing it, letting every time you get humbled be a reminder that it's not you, it's just happening. And then with all of these thoughts that come through, learning to listen behind the content to where they're coming from. You know, I, I sometimes think of this whole process as really learning to listen skillfully more and more. That's what we're do- doing. We're learning to listen to each moment, the truth in each moment. And the, the image that I find helpful, uh, if you're familiar with the Tibetan uh, uh, figures and iconography and and uh, and masters. There's the uh, the image of Milarepa, and if you if you know uh, Tonkas, if you've seen Tonkas, and there's one figure with his hand to his ear, 
That's Milarepa. Milarepa always has his hand to his ear. You can tell that's him. He's listening to the song of the Dharma, the, the 100,000 songs of Milarepa. And I take that to be a metaphor for what we're doing. We're learning to listen to this moment. Oh, here's the breath. Here's a sound. Here's a sensation. This is what's happening now. And more and more, we're getting skilled at listening to the truth deep inside. And as we are listening to the truth, we can start to discern between the various thoughts that come through, saying, this is what you should be doing. No, this is what you should be doing. You can feel it. You can feel the truth right in your body and right in your heart and right in your mind. How do you know? Let me ask you. We can just um, put it out to you. When you're really in touch with the truth that says, this feels right. How do you know? How does it, how can you trust that it feels right? Any cues that you find helpful? Take a few comments. Yeah. Okay. Your body is very relaxed. There's no resistance to the thought. And feeling that openness. Anything else? Yeah. Stop thinking about it. No. You stop thinking about it and ruminating and dwelling. It just kind of becomes apparent. Okay, good. There's lots of different ways. I'm not looking for the right answer. How, how else? Do you think there's a sense of location in the body? Speak up, please. Okay, so there's a sense of location. You can feel it perhaps in a more grounded place. And the intonation in the thought, it's coming from a very different place than a finger wagging saying, you'd better do this and not blow it. What's the intonation? How does it sound? Friendly, what's it was last? Friendly, quiet, caring, compassionate. It's supportive, right? It's not judgmental, it's not agitated, it's not contracted. Anything else? I think there I think there's several feelings and I can't name them all, but I would say a sense of peace, a sense of equanimity, and a sense of just a deep sense of, of, of resonance, the fact It just feels right. A sense of peace, equanimity, and resonance. It just feels right. We we all have our own way of sensing how it feels right. But this is more and more a refining of knowing what feels right about it. And one way is feeling in your body. Because if there's a contraction there or an agitation chances are this is not the voice of wisdom. There's an openness, an ease, a support, a connection. In the mind, there's not an agitation or contraction. There's an openness, there's a kindness, there's a support again, there's a a clarity, uh, an, an alignment, a kind of, ah, this is it. And more and more, if you can learn to listen and discern between those energies, both in your body and in your mind and in your heart, this is a tremendous gift of practice. It's right in there, you know. You're just learning to listen more and more and more. So to really be present for the energy and if there's an alignment, to just notice it and let yourself feel it. And also see this is an ongoing process. It's not like, oh, I got it, 
that's the answer. Because life keeps on changing, and in just one moment, you can buy into thinking, hey, pretty cool, I got it. There's a a line I love from uh, Hinduism that says, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. So it's just one thought away saying, hey, I think I got it. I got it means you are in the way of getting it. The corollary to that is no matter how lost you are, coming back to the truth is just one thought away. And there's a kind, again, a kind of humility and a kind of listening and an opening and receiving rather than you figuring out. So this is why the Buddha said, you know, come and see for yourself. Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself and open up to the truth. The wisdom is right inside there. It's not out there. If you hear somebody say something that's really wise, don't get caught in thinking, oh, they've got so much wisdom. I wish I had that much wisdom. You know? It's touching a place inside of you that's saying, yep, right on. That makes sense to me. That's, it's just the truth awakening itself through these forms. And it takes some courage to hang in there and keep on being humbled again and again until you kind of finally get it. But it also is, I mean, what's the alternative? It's just kind of, you can start to relax. This is the great thing. When you, you've struggled, I know people who've struggled for 10 years, 20 years, and giving themselves a hard time until they finally realize, oh, I don't have to struggle. Amazing. And so I offer that to you. Struggling is extra. If you're struggling, don't feel, oh, I'm putting in my time now. You know, Struggling, where's the attachment? Where's the sense of self that's being created here? Can I let go and really open up and meet the truth, meet this moment as wisely as I can? And so just getting a glimpse of that more and more that you get a glimpse of it, the more you can start to trust it. It's trustable. Underneath the fear or the confusion, there's your Buddha knowing, your, the Buddha within, the kingdom of God, your true nature, whatever, whatever you call it. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho. The self arises and I start thinking about myself, my feelings, my memories, my past, my fears and desires. And the whole world arises around me and it takes off into orbit. My views, my feelings, my opinions. I get caught into that world, that view of me that arises in consciousness. But if I know that, then my refuge is no longer in being a person. I'm not taking a refuge refuge in being a personality or my views and opinions, I can then let go so the world of me ends. The refuge then is in this awareness rather than in trying to sustain refined experiences in consciousness as our refuge, because you can't do it. You can maybe learn through developing a skillful use to increase your sense of experience of refinement, but inevitably you have to allow the coarser elements to just manifest, to be a part of your conscious experience. Resting in this conscious awareness is coming home. That's our real home. I'll just close with the Buddha's words. One of his last words, Therefore, be lamps unto yourselves, be a refuge to yourselves, betake yourself to no external refuge, hold fast to the truth as a lamp, hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. 
Those who either now or after I'm dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, betake to themselves no external refuge, holding fast to the truth is their lamp, holding fast to the truth is their refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, but they must be eager to learn. listening to the wisdom and the Buddha right inside of you. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.